0: There is a stretch of Highway 16 that runs through British Columbia in Canada that's known as the Highway of Tears. For decades now, women have gone missing or have been found murdered just off that highway, in particular First Nations women. For the next two weeks, we'll explore some of the cases along the infamous highway and the ongoing efforts to bring justice to the many missing and murdered Indigenous women. The lonely stretch of highway has claimed. This is the Red Justice Project.
1: Okay, so as Brittany mentioned, today we are going to be talking about an unsettling amount of Indigenous women who have gone missing or who have been murdered when their last known sighting was along Highway 16. And Brittany, just as an aside, when I Googled Highway 16 to start doing research for this episode, I learned that while the stretch of highway that runs through British Columbia is just over 400 miles, the total length of Highway 16 is 666 miles long, which in Christianity, 666 is not a good number sequence.
0: Oh my God, I'm getting Mark of the Beast vibes right now. Like I am not feeling
1: this already. Right, but it's supposed to be a really scenic highway.
0: Scenic for Satan. (laughs) But anyways, y'all can keep that scenery, and I'll just be down here in North Carolina, staying far, far away from that highway. Uh, But as we mentioned, there are a number of women who have gone missing or who have been murdered along the highway of tears over the last 40 years, most of them indigenous. When we were researching, I couldn't figure out whose story we should focus on because there are just really so many But I do want to start with the story of Delphine Nickel. So Delphine was born in 1974 and was a member of the Wet'suwet'en tribe in British Columbia. She was born in Smithers, British Columbia, but moved to the neighboring village of Telqua when she was 11 years old. And her family described her as being an adventurous child who loved animals.
1: And Brittany, going back to the different villages, I think it's important to remember that these towns are pretty small and very remote. And up until the 1990s, it was actually quite common to hitchhike along Highway 16 if you didn't have transportation to get from one town to the next. Like even teenagers did it and they still do today from what I understand with little to no regard about the dangers that may occur.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it was kind of common all over the place, which is also crazy to me, I guess, as a person who's really interested in true crime, like thinking about getting into a stranger's vehicle, because I personally would never do that, I guess, except for if I was Ubering or lifting or something like that. But my mama would totally kill me if I got into the car with a stranger, if I was
1: hitchhiking. So, yeah. Same, which is funny to think about how we do get into strangers' cars (laughs) all the time now. Yes, Um, So back to Delphine. So the year was 1990 and Delphine by this time was a 16 year old girl. She was living with her uncle because her mom actually was in a four month coma at a hospital over four hours away after a surgery that had gone terribly wrong. Now her uncle, Frank Tompkins, he actually lived just across the street from Delphine and her mother, Judy. So it wasn't like a big move or anything for Delphine. So on Wednesday, June 13th, at approximately 2 p.m., Delphine lets her uncle know she was going to go into town and just meet up with some friends. And she did just that. She met her friend, Crystal Grinke, and two other girls. The girls reported that they wandered around town for a bit in the afternoon before eventually settling at the Mohawk gas station in the evening, which was at the corner of the main street in town and Highway 16. And Chelsea, I feel like this is just such a typical thing to do in a small town. You
0: know, there's not much going on. So you end up hanging out at a local gas station or in a parking lot of a Walmart, which I did too many times when I was in high school.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I could probably go down the road to any local gas station in Robinson County where we're from and see people today just chilling.
0: Yeah, shout out to the Spirit Store and Neek's. So, while they were at the gas station, Delphine's friends say that she actually asked them to come and spend the night at her house since her mother was not there. Now, remember, for the past few months, Delphine had been living with her uncle across the street, so they thought it was a bit unusual, and also they say that Delphine had never asked any of them to spend the night with her before. But either way, the girls said no because of school and work the next day, so they report that they parted ways eventually from the gas station out on Highway 16 and Main Street. Before she left the area, Delphine called to tell her uncle that she was heading home. But, as these stories unfortunately go, she never made it back home
1: to her uncle's house. So, Delphine was last seen hitchhiking in the eastbound lane of Highway 16. So, from all the reports I read, this was the direction that would have taken her back towards her home. So, it seems like based on the phone call to her uncle and the reports of her in the eastbound lane, she truly was heading home. I mean, she had even asked her friends to spend the night, and she didn't have anything with her to go off anywhere, really. So, right away, her family actually reports her missing. But, because she's a teenager, and there was no sign of anything bad happening to her, like no foul play or anything police actually suggest that she'd probably just ran off and would return soon. They didn't really take the family's report too seriously. Which to me is so frustrating because I hear about a lot of cases like this
0: when teenagers go missing specifically like the and the police department tries to always say oh well, you know they probably just ran away or maybe they went off with their boyfriend or one of their friends but you know I'm sure that is the case in a lot of cases but it, it's just always disheartening when it you know, when you know that if they had intervened earlier, that maybe there could have been a different outcome. So, and I always wonder, you know, how many other families are in that same boat and then who have had their daughters or mothers go missing on the Highway of Tears just to be brushed off by the police as runaways or something like that.
1: Right. I know. I mean, that's my biggest gripe with reading these kinds of cases when police don't take it serious. Even if you think she ran away, she is a freaking teenager. Find her and bring her buck back home.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I think in this case, because the police actually knew Delphine, they really did assume that she had just ran off. So Delphine had been charged with some minor offenses such as petty theft and mischief and had even spent some time in a couple of youth facilities in the province. So to them, it was just Delphine going off and doing her own thing, but her family knew that that was not the case. So with no help from local law enforcement, the family had to begin searching for Delphine alone. They knocked on doors and even drove the 13 hours it takes to get to Vancouver, which is the largest city in the province, to go and look for her. So Mary Nichol, who was Delphine's sister, was quoted as saying, there was none, literally no support.
1: The cops never showed a whole lot of interest. They obviously didn't really care. And this, once again, just blows my mind how they couldn't just do their job. At this point, it's the 1990s, and they know by now that there are tons of reports of people who, going missing quite often on Highway 16, you'd think they would take the family a bit more seriously. And you mentioned the family had gone to Vancouver, Brittany, and I read that the police, when they finally started paying attention to the case, decided to immediately rule out foul play because so many of the missing young people from that area usually turned up in Vancouver, which the family, when they went to Vancouver, knew it probably wouldn't pan out. They knew and tried their best to convince the police that Delphine wouldn't just run away. Remember, her mother was very sick in the hospital, and the two of them were very close. Her family knew she wouldn't leave her mother when she was in that kind of condition. And Delphine's friends, so those three girls that we told y'all she was hanging out with, they told the police that she would have told them if she was running away, and that although she typically didn't ask them to spend the night, she had just asked them that day to spend the night. All of her belongings were still at home, too. Not a single thing was missing from her room. So if she had ran away, she would have left with just the clothes on her back. And I mean, come on. What teenager with no money and no car would be like, just let me run away with what I have on? I won't worry about clothes or anything.
0: Right. So like while she had gotten in trouble for some petty crimes, she wasn't a drug addict or an alcoholic or anything like that. She was just a normal teen who would have been smart enough to at least pack something if she was planning on leaving home for a while. And so also I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioning that, you know, she had asked her friends to stay over the night at her house and she never did that before. And it just makes me think about sometimes how people have premonitions of of things happening to them. Like maybe she had some kind of premonition that something bad was going to happen to her. And it makes me think about a podcast that I listened to a few years ago about this little girl who had begged her mother to let her go to this summer camp. She begged her for months and months and months. And finally her mama said, "Okay, you can go. Well, on the day before she was supposed to go to the camp, she told her mama that she didn't want to go anymore. She begged her not to make her go. But her mama still made her go because she was like, you know, you begged to go. I already paid the money. You know, you're going to go. And then when she gets to the camp, she ends up being murdered. Her and two other um, two other girls who are at the camp end up being murdered and they never figured out who did it. And so listening to stories like that and also stories like this one just again makes me think about like the powerful Intuition that people sometimes have that goes beyond just normal nervousness or anxiety. And so just like Delphine here, it's not normal for her to ask her friends to stay over, but she did that particular night. And so, you know, that's just an aside that I'm thinking about right now. But so Delphine's family was able to bring in CANPRO investigation services as well as the Missing Children Society of Canada. And those groups offered a $10,000 reward for information on Delphine's disappearance. And finally, information started to come in. Some of the different tips included the Mohawk gas station attendant saying that he saw her getting into a red sports car on Highway 16 on the night that she disappeared, and others say that they saw her at a party that night in a much more rural area near Smithers, where she lived. Her uncle was even investigated over the years before he eventually died without ever knowing what happened to Delphine. And none of the leads the police ever received panned out. Even as late as March 2019, folks have still been calling in tips— A witness last year said that they saw Delphine that evening being picked up by a car that looked like it was from out of town, but but just like the other leads, that one never panned out either. If you have any information about what happened to Delphine Nickel in 1990, please contact the Prince George RCMP or the British Columbia Crime Stoppers. We will link all of that information on our website at redjusticepodcast.com.
1: And so while Delphine's story is tragic, it's not unique. So many women and girls have gone missing from Highway 16, including Delphine Nichols' own first cousin, Cecilia Nickel, who went missing just one year earlier in 1989. To figure out what was happening to all of these girls, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, finally created a task force in 2005 called EPANA. Now, Brittany, I looked up EPANA because I wanted to figure out the acronyms to share with, you know, everyone on the show. So the E is just the Division of Criminal Operations. But the word PANA actually comes from the Inuit word for the spirit goddess that looks after souls before they go to heaven or are reincarnated. Wow. So the sole purpose of the EPANA task force was to investigate the series of unsolved murders and disappearances that happen along the Highway of Tears. On their website, EPANA says it's the job of the task force to determine if a serial killer or killers is responsible for murdering young women traveling along major highways in British Columbia.
0: And I think it's absolutely wild that there is so much crime along a highway that you actually have to create a task force just for that highway. But I'm also really glad that they finally did something about it.
1: Yes, me too. And like like you said earlier, like kind of keep me away from that highway no matter how scenic. Yes,
0: And so, as Chelsea said, the task force was created in 2005, and by 2006, they took ownership of nine open investigations, and by 2007, they took over 18 open investigations of cases along the Highway of Tears. EPANA had certain criteria for the cases they would review. The cases ranged from 1969 to 2006, and the three items of criteria were, one, the victim had to be a female... And two, she had to have been known to hitchhike, which as we mentioned was pretty common during the time and in the location, as a lot of folks just didn't have cars. Or she had to have been known to engage in risky behavior. And the third and final criteria for EPANA to take the case was that the female had to be last seen or their body found within a mile or so from three major British Columbia highways, one of which was the infamous Highway 16. The other two were Highway 97 and Highway 5, which also had their share of danger, but not quite like Highway 16. And so when I was reviewing the EPANA website, it said that there are approximately 50 investigators and staff committed to the cases of these women and that they don't believe it's the work of a single serial killer for all EPANA cases, although one might be involved for some of them.
1: And as we both know and have researched, there are a number of missing and murdered Indigenous women along the Highway of Tears. There are so many proposed explanations for this, and I think it's kind of important to explore them and understand what they mean for the Indigenous communities there. When you think about the systemic poverty inflicted on Indigenous people from resource and land theft, looking at you, Canada and the United States, it's so easy to see how these groups of women can become victims to a lonely stretch of highway.
0: And Australia, too. And you have this stretch of highway that snakes through huge evergreen forest, tiny logging towns and First Nations Reserve with really the only occasional logging road to turn off. And so in December 2016, Justin Trudeau, who is the prime minister of Canada, announced an inquiry into the disappearances and many murders of indigenous women in Canada after years of mounting pressure for the government to look into it. And the inquiry is a nationwide effort to look at cases, although, as we have discussed, many of the cases did take place along the Highway of Tears. Trudeau said it was, and I quote, a total renewal of Canada's relationship with its indigenous citizens. And honestly, Chelsea, just like the U.S., Canada is last to act in supporting Indigenous citizens. And while First Nations women make up 4% of the Canadian female population, they represent 16% of all female homicides, which is four times the amount of their representation in in Canada.
1: The more we do these episodes, the more clear it is how many of our tribal communities have so many of our women and girls taken away from them prematurely from murder. It's creating such a cycle of family brokenness, and I think folks are finally starting to see that. So, as part of that inquiry, Carolyn Bennett, who was the Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, actually spent months traveling across Canada to consult with different First Nations communities. Time after time, she heard of the racism and sexism by police officers when disappearances and murders were reported. Family said it was as if officers treated indigenous women's deaths as having been something inevitable and like their lives just mattered less. And I'm going to read a quote from Carolyn Bennett that I found in the New York Times from her travels. What's clear is the uneven application of justice. One reason to doubt the estimate by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is that the police often immediately deemed the women's deaths to be suicides, drug overdoses, or accidents. Over the protest of relatives who suspected foul play, there is no investigation. The file folders are empty. And when we're talking about the estimates here um, from Carolyn, she's referring to the actual counts they have of the number of Indigenous women who have been murdered across Canada.
0: And also, this is not just a Canadian-specific issue, so the United States has the same issue of under-reporting the numbers of murders of Indigenous women in the U.S. Our numbers are actually much higher than what they present, um, and so, you know, it's just crazy. Uh, thinking about the lack of empathy that we see across so many of these cases. And I love the way the reporter in that article described the Highway of Tears as both the microcosm of Canada's painful Indigenous legacy and as a test for Mr. Trudeau to see if he can change the nation-to-nation relationship with Indigenous communities. And we're talking about anguished communities reeling from economic decay, from generations of socioeconomic marginalization and government trauma from things like residential boarding schools that ripped indigenous kids from their families until the freaking mid-1990s. And so while we may think that it's crazy to hitchhike from place to place, if you're from a community with no economic prospects and you have no car, I could see how people would do it to get from place to place. You know, there are really no other alternatives in that situation.
1: Right, like in a place with no public transportation and no traffic cameras or really even lighting on the highway, it really does create an opportunity for evil to just come in and harm those that are economically disadvantaged. Exactly, and it creates the perfect backdrop for murderers
0: to essentially thrive, and that's what we will get into next week during our second part of our Highway of Tears episode. We'll discuss a few more deaths of Indigenous women at the hands of serial killers, and we will also go further into detail about many of the organizations working to bring awareness to these cases and the Highway of Tears. This has been another episode of the Red Justice Project, and we hope you'll stay tuned for our second part next week. Thank you all for listening.